What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Hey everyone, welcome back. We have an awesome interview today with David Siegel, who is the CEO of Meetup, meetup.com, and the author of the new book, Decide and Conquer, in which he documents his experience of becoming the CEO of Meetup after WeWork bought it, and then WeWork imploded, and their stock price plummeted, and their IPO was a disaster. And David was faced with the challenge of keeping Meetup alive and finding someone to buy it. All the while, Meetup has been an incredible community since it first launched in 2002. It's grown to millions of users and brought people together in person. I've had such incredible experiences with Meetup over the course of my career. I got a lot of my first starts in community management through the CM Meetup and through New York Tech Meetup. And it's done wonders for the world, but it had struggled with monetization and driving profit and being a successful business. And so David came in to try to turn it into a successful business and try to save it from the downfall of WeWork and just fascinating stories with a ton of really great advice. We dive into how he used his decision-making framework to navigate those really hard challenges. And that's what his book is all about, the 44 hard decisions that he had to make and how he went about making those decisions. So we talk all about how to develop your own decision-making framework in this discussion and the different kinds of decisions he made, how to earn trust with a new company when you come and join, when to micromanage and when to empower people. He also shared a lot of really interesting data and stories about Meetup, how it first started, how it grew, how they measure it, what's important for building in-person community the metrics that they look at to know whether or not a new meetup is going to be successful or not, so they can be predictive about that. You're going to have a lot of fun in this interview, whether you're a CEO, an entrepreneur, a community builder, community professional, or you just like good stories. There's so much for you in here. Uh, Hope you all like it. Let's dive in. David, welcome to the show. David, it's great to be here. I think we made the same joke on your podcast, the the David David <laughs> connection, and it's not old. It's still funny. <laughs> Works every time. All David's there for to use and abuse that one. <laughs> All right. Well, so I'm excited to dive into a lot of things with you. We've gotten to know each other over the last few years uh, since you joined Meetup. I had the privilege of chatting with you early in your journey when you first joined Meetup, and you were kind of getting really ingrained into the world of community. And now you have your, your new book, Decide and Conquer, which I found interesting both for the community stories in there, as well as the advice for CEOs that you have, have in there that I wish I read 10 years ago when I became a CEO, as well as the community lessons that you wrote in there. And I just think decision-making is like, it's something I thought about my whole career. And for a lot of my career, have perceived myself as like 
not a great decision maker. <laughs> like, like That's there are people out there who I feel like I'm better now, but I don't know. Maybe we could, we'll definitely talk about this. Yeah. Most people think it's like driving where like 90% of people think they're above average drivers. I feel like 90% of people think they're above average decision makers. So. Oh, really? Interesting. Kudos to you that you don't think you were a good decision maker in the past. That's good potential awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think like, I feel like I've worked with people who just seem to just know what their decision is very quickly and they're mm. like able to get to a decision quickly. Mm. And I just feel like I've always need to really process and take mm. in a lot of information and different perspectives. Like, I guess it's not that I'm a bad decision maker. I'm just not like a quick, I, know, I already know what the right move is. Like I, I take time and that's not always great when you're trying to build a startup. Right. Speedy decision making is definitely one of the principles we talk about in the book a lot. But it doesn't mean you're necessarily a bad decision maker. It just means that you need, may need to speed up the pace in which you're able to make a decision. It sounds like you probably have done so. So exactly. You've done well for yourself. Done all right. I've done okay. <laughs> but you do talk about that in the book. And I, I like those sections. And I really like your design framework. I mean, your decision framework approach, which we're going to talk about. But before we dive into the tactics, would love to give everyone the TLDR of who is David Siegel and how did you come to become the CEO of Meetup? And I mean, you had some wild stories right off the bat in your book about the journey of Meetup getting acquired by WeWork and then getting unacquired by WeWork and WeWork's fall and how Meetup kind of navigated that. So let's just start off with a story. Okay. Personal story first and then Meetup story. Let's do it. Sure. Okay. So I think to tie the two together, I'll start with my personal story with community. I happen to have grown up with an extremely strong sense of community. I grew up in the Orthodox Jewish world where if someone gave birth, there was like, you got food for a month. People would just bring food to you for a month. If God forbid mm. someone passed away, there'd be people supporting at all times and everything in between. So community was something that was always extremely important to my personal life. I don't think I realized how lucky I was to have such a strong community the way that I grew up. So that's kind of personal. Professionally, I was very lucky, frankly, to get a very early job during the dot-com boom and bust with a company called DoubleClick, which some people who are 30 and above, 35 and above might know, it was the Silicon Alley company back in the day that mm -hmm. Google ended up acquiring for $3 billion. And over 200 people have become CEOs of companies wow. out of the double-click mafia. The double-click mafia. People know the PayPal mafia, the double-click mafia. It's extraordinary. Mm. And it ends up that person who acquired Meetup, of course, came from, was the former CEO of DoubleClick later on. Anyway, so I was lucky to get that. And what happened then is because I got that exposure at 24, 25 years old, I ended up having all these opportunities because not that many people knew the internet in the late 1990s. And then I went to a series of different kind of jobs where I was an executive at 1-800-Flowers for about five years. I was a general manager at a company called Everyday Health, the second largest health publisher. Then I became president of a company called Seeking Alpha, which is a financial publisher, and then became the CEO of Investopedia for four and a half years, where we rose, we were, drove revenue growth from like $11 million to $35 million, sold the company. And then Adam Newman and a board member came and knocking and said, Hey, David, would you like to become the first outside CEO of Meetup? Mm. And I said, Meetup? I love Meetup. I've been to so many Meetup events. I wasn't a Meetup organizer at the time. Love community. And I had done pretty well financially. So 
one of the things that was a top priority for me was to work in a cause that was a noble cause that really meant something very special to me. And although financial education in Investopedia was important, and I think the lack of financial education is a real danger in many, many people's lives that they make a lot of financial mistakes, the loneliness epidemic that kind of exists in this world, and I have friends that have gone through the loneliness epidemic and meetups kind of ability to be the cure for the loneliness epidemic, and also part of the WeWork kind of fascination kind of made it a no-brainer for me. So 27 interviews later, became Meetup CEO. Quick process. And it was a journey. Wow. That is quite a journey. And I didn't know that you were in the Orthodox community growing up. Are you still active in the Orthodox community? I am actually. I'm wearing a, you got your wearing a kippah or yarmulke on my head right now. Nice. And yeah, no, my I my oldest son is in college in Israel, actually. Nice. And I'm Sabbath observant, keep kosher, and uh, the whole nine yards. It's a big part of my life. Sweet. I didn't know that. Very cool. My mom grew up in a more Orthodox household in Israel, but then married an Irishman and moved to the US. So I got a very hybrid upbringing. (laughs) Not very Orthodox. That's where you have your red hair and glasses. Okay. Makes sense. That's right. Yeah. The quality of the beard is from the Jewish side, but the color is from the Irish side. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Very rabbinic. (laughs) Exactly. And then... Yeah. I mean, the meetup experience, I had a lot of experiences with meetup as well. I grew up in New York. Meetup was huge in New York, obviously. And some of my first experiences in the community industry came through CM Meetup, was a community manager meetup. This was before CMX existed. It was kind of like the first community manager community started on meetup as far as I knew it. So Amazing. So many communities, so many organizations that have big conferences right now started off their small conferences even Mm. on Meetup. I mean, so it's absolutely amazing. So many political figures were successful because of Meetup, which we could talk about at some time. So many CEOs of companies, an example, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, he attributes a lot of his success to going from one cryptocurrency and one Bitcoin to another Bitcoin Meetup group. And that's how he ended up meeting all these people in crypto. And it was through Meetup that he kind of gain an unfair advantage, shall we say, in in learning about the industry. So there's just tons of examples like that. Totally. New York Tech Meetup too, which was like the test events, right? That Scott, the original CEO and founder, first created just to like prove out Meetup. And like that became huge. And I used to go to those all the time. They're huge. Those events were huge. A hundred thousand members of that. It's the largest, yeah, largest, largest Meetup group. I feel like Meetup's kind of like this like quiet... Like in the background, you could probably draw so many lines for so many tech companies. And people still perceive Meetup as more of like, ah, it's like a consumer app. It's more of like hobbyists and knitting groups. But like, I bet you like there's a significant percentage of tech companies and really large communities today that have lines going straight back to Meetup. Yeah. And one of the things that I don't take fully the Steve Jobs approach of wearing the black turtleneck, but I do wear my black Meetup t-shirt kind of all the time. For those who are watching can see the black yarmulke is the Steve Jobs. Because <laughs> the video is after my black yarmulke. So I'm matched. I put me up on my yarmulke. Uh, yeah. So you don't? I'm surprised. <laughs> so I wear this and I walk into a Starbucks or I walk into someplace and people are just like, oh, you go to meetup events? So do I. I'm like, oh no, actually I work at meetup. I don't tell them exactly what I do. And then you hear stories of people just coming out at you. Oh, I met my best friend through a meetup group or I met my business partner through a meetup group or it's just amazing how many people we've touched. It's 57 million people and counting right now. Totally. I love that. Yeah. 
It's huge. Yeah. I, I still have a meetup shirt that I got, I think maybe 13 years ago and it's still held together. It doesn't even look like a meetup shirt. It just has like a, the little original M before the rebrand. David, I think it's time. You deserve a new meetup shirt. You're on my podcast. Yeah, I thought right. we so, sent everyone a meetup shirt. I got to get you a new, new meetup shirt, man. I don't know, but I should have worn my OG one just for credibility on this podcast. <laughs> but yes, meetup is huge. I don't know if people still realize just how big it is as well. And it grew really fast originally. You shared some of the numbers in your book about how it started. I wanted to touch on that real quick on how Scott had first kind of tested out Meetup and got like the proof of concept. I thought that was really interesting. It grew to 200,000 users in the first year and 1,500 groups. But can you speak a little bit about what that process was that Scott took to essentially get it off the ground? Yeah, I think it was a genius move. And it was before the Lean Startup approach even became anything. Lean Startup hadn't even written it. So what he did is he took a thousand different topics or so in hundreds of different locations. And if you multiply 100 by 1,000, you're talking about 100,000 different potential options. And then even before Groupon, he took the Groupon kind of approach of you need a minimum number of people that could be interested in a particular event. And he just created or thousands and thousands of potential events. Mm -hmm. And then only if four people were to say, yes, I want to go, then boom, click. Now it became an event. He chose a location. People chose the location and boom, they were out and they did it. So the genius of that is he created the opportunity for there to be an enormous potential number of options, but he didn't say, oh, I know that dog lovers uh, is the absolute thing in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. He said, there could be dog lovers that are interested in Kansas City, or there could be hikers interested in Kansas City, or LGBT and hikers in Kansas City, who knows what are in St. Louis. And he let the market dictate it, but he created the framework for to make it a lot more efficient and effective. So it was just an absolutely genius move. And how did that align with, because I think New York Tech Meetup was like, was that like the one that he ran just to be one of the organizers? Because I'm trying to like wrap my head around how like there was this very scalable, not very hands-on version of launching thousands and thousands of potential events. And then there was like the super hands-on version of finding product market fit or community market fit. Yeah. The super hands-on version is you got to eat your own dog food, right? You got to be your own organizer. For example, I'm a meetup organizer. Almost all of our leadership team is meetup organizers. Over half of meetup employees are meetup organizers. And it was Scott's way of saying, in order for me to be effective as CEO, just like I said the same thing, I need to be a meetup organizer. And he built the New York Tech group to be just an enormous force. And then someone, a number of people have led it. Andy Saldana is, I think, leading it right now. And it's a force. So, But that wasn't the play. That wasn't how meetup was going to grow. That was more of a learning opportunity. Mm. How meetup was going to grow and scale was serving as a platform not a doer, but a platform to enable other people to step up and become organizers. Hmm. And so, and I don't know if you know how deep you know about what he did then. So, okay, so four people said, I want to go to an event. Mm -hmm. And you said he would help them find a venue? No, what he would do is he would, (laughs) what he did is he found a few locations in each city that were easily available for anyone to host a potential event. Right, And then there was an automated system where it would say, once four people chose something, would you like to hold the event in XYZ place, XYZ place, or XYZ place? And then people would choose which of the three places. The key was he made it easy for people to figure it out. 
as opposed to having to, finding a venue is always a complicated thing. And it could be a reason for things not to work out. So he led the witness, shall we say, with specific venues already listed, yeah. not know, and knowing that there's enough space in Central Park at certain location that it's not going to be a problem to be able to meet there. Totally. And like, I just want to point out as well, at this time, it was weird to meet up with people that you met on the internet. Like today, this- Oh, it was dangerous yeah, potentially. Like, I mean, there were some, there still are freaks out there, but it was really our freaks back there. Today's is like, obviously, yeah, like I like dogs. I'll meet people on the internet and who also like dogs. But then this was a very weird novel concept. So yeah. it wasn't like everybody would be interested in becoming a host and meeting up with other people. Yeah, this is 20 years ago. He had, he had to find the weirdos, basically. <laughs> well, speaking of weirdos, the number one topic, I don't want to offend people who are into this, but the number one group in 2002, after the meetup was built, the largest group was people who are interested in being witches and witchcraft. Wow. That was the top group was witch witches. Huh. Super interesting. So it was really a lot of edge cases, shall we say, and uh, creative people. I don't know if you know this. One of the most popular NFT communities right now is called Crypto Coven, a witch community, a witch NFT community. Well, everyone knows witches are clearly the trendsetters. That's what it comes down to. I think there might be something here. We're going to have to do some more digging into this. We'll table this discussion. I'm going to do some research. We'll come back to witches. <laughs> but okay. So, and just to put a point on that approach, it's interesting because I think it actually is in some ways different from how a lot of other platforms have launched, right? Like Facebook launched just in one school, one community, right. very targeted. Right. Reddit was one page and they did the astroturfing fake members thing, but it was like targeted at engineers. And Twitter started as an internal communication tool for one company. So usually when people ask me, how do I launch a new community platform? I'm like, be very focused, be very hands-on, like figure it out in one place and then scale. But Meetup is kind of the one that bucks that trend because it just went as broad as possible and cast a really wide net in order to find the few that it was a fit for. Yeah. And what's cool about that is that then you get to see, oh, how interesting. Of the 100 cities we launched in, 60 of them have tech groups. Hmm. Now let's go after tech because clearly that's, since that's so popular, let's have it in 40 other cities as well or witches or whatever the topic. Maybe you could see which topics really resonate. And then you could be more proactive in trying to find other groups in other cities that that made sense to do. Mm, love it. So you're using data to kind of to your advantage there. It's super interesting. So gets off to running, grows a lot. There were issues on the community platform like there is on any community platform. One of the issues was quality, right? It was free mm -hmm. to host. You had lots of people launching chapters, but the quality of those chapters weren't very high. So Meetup made a huge change. I think that's a pretty notable thing to touch on as well. Can you speak about that briefly? Yeah, of course, of course. So what happened was there were like 50,000 groups after a few years. And the problem was some of the organizers didn't have enough skin in the game. They weren't necessarily taking it seriously. They're becoming very promotional oriented. No one wants to necessarily join a community or group where you're constantly being sold stuff, right? They didn't necessarily perform high quality events. and they didn't have enough of an incentive to even have events at times. It was just kind of sit back, own it, and not do anything. So Scott and the team made a decision. They're going to start charging organizers. They started charging $9 an organizer. 
And immediately the number of groups went from 50,000 groups to 4,000 groups, over a 90% decline. And it took like over two or three years for the company to get back to 50,000 groups. Today, we have close to 200,000 groups. So we're in fine shape. But I think it's a testament to Scott to understand that building community is about building a quality experience. And you have to start with quality experiences. And if you don't, then you're building off of a foundation that's ultimately going to going to fail. And I wasn't there at the time, of course, but I give him tremendous credit for that quality focus. Love it. So quality went up over time, revenue grew, the number of events grew, but Meetup still had challenges. And in the book, you talk about how it was essentially kind of run like a nonprofit, mm-hmm. not really this like fast growth venture backed company that it was because it did raise money. And I mean, this is a really interesting topic that comes up a lot on this podcast because like money and community, it's, it's like such a hard thing to figure out whether you're a community professional working for a company and trying to prove the value of your work so you get budget and buy-in or you are building a community itself and you're trying to figure out how do I financially sustain it and monetize it or a community platform. So what was the challenge there? And I think this is important because it's going to tee up how you came in to meet up and then like the premise of the book and why it was so important to have these really important decision-making frameworks. Yeah. I mean, they obviously weren't able to read the book, The Business of Community at that time. Had they been able to read a book like that, David? (laughs) Business of Belonging. Oh, shoot. Business of Belonging. Had they been able to read Business of Belonging earlier, then easy peasy wouldn't have been a problem. Problem (laughs) solved. But this is, you know, only a few years into it. So they didn't have the, the David Spinks Bible. And uh, I think there were two challenges. Challenge number one was that the company attracted people who very much had a nonprofit, at some points, anti-revenue type mentality. And they didn't really appreciate the fact that in order to be a sustainable and growing business, the key is you need to have revenue and profit for it to ultimately be sustainable. And I think that's true in many organizations in many areas, but it's particularly true at Meetup. And it was a, a big challenge in the culture that I in- inherited. And it was a big conflict with WeWork, who was not profit-oriented clearly at all because they were losing tons of money, but they were very financial and revenue motivated. That is for sure. Mm-hmm. The second challenge was in just figuring out what the right business model ultimately was. They tried charging venues. The company tried charging members. The company tried charging organizers. Ultimately, they set it on a model and similar model that we have today, which is an organizer-driven model where organizers are, and it, it keeps quality up because we do charge organizers, not a tremendous amount, but a relatively small fee for the value that's gained. And we also have a B2B business where companies like Google and AWS and, and WordPress sponsor and support meetup groups. And that's a very fast-growing area within meetups. Those two are the 90-plus percent of our, our company revenue. So those were the two challenges, the revenue model and kind of the culture around business. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's true of a lot of us community builders is like we don't necessarily like thinking about it as having to drive rapid growth and revenue. Like We want to build community and the finances almost feel like a distraction. But I think if there's something we've all learned over the last decade in the world of tech and community, finding that balance is really, really important. You know, we've polled actually many, most all of our meetup organizers, and around 60% of meetup organizers tend to do it for some 
form of philanthropic reason and 40% do it for some revenue, profit, business type reason. So we're still actually a little bit skew higher at Meetup in terms of I have a breast cancer support group and I had gone through best cancer, I'm not talking about myself, but the organizer, I want to create an organizer, a group to help other people. Mm-hmm. It was challenging for me to share with other people my sexual identity. I want to form a group to help people to figure that out, part of sexual identity as well. So there's there's a whole host of more philanthropic reasons as well. People create groups. Mm. Yeah. And then you start feeling weird, like I'm going to charge people to organize a, a breast cancer community, right? It's different than someone who's like yep. trying to do a marketing community and trying yep. to grow a business. Yep. How do you think about that personally? Like balancing when you have such a platform with so many different ways that people... Like I know we we have this challenge too with Bevy. Like we're an enterprise yep. company. Companies pay us a lot of money and... Then we have philanthropic causes that we want to support, but like you can only do so much with the resources you have. Yeah, our job is to create the right tools, is to give tools to our organizers so they could defray any costs that they may have. So for example, if you're an organizer and of a more philanthropic type of group, maybe it's just even people that love hiking or whatever, you can charge dues to your members. There are many organizers talking to the organizer of uh, beer city runners in Durham, North Carolina, and she has sponsors for her group that totally defray the cost. So mm. you could have ways as an organizer to end up paying nothing. Even many of our organizers actually make money mm-hmm. off of the platform because the amount of dues that they're getting and the amount of or sponsorship that they're getting is at or more totally. than what they're actually charging. We're actually going to be launching something soon where people can give money to a nonprofit, any 501c3, through Meetup as part of kind of giving back to the community as well. Very cool. Love it. Yeah. If you can align with those members and give them tools and education, teach them how to make it financially sustainable, which, yeah, that's what we're all trying to do, right? Like teach community builders how to sustain the community they're building. It's hard. I had that experience with CMX. Same thing. Okay. So, all right. I want to move into the book and decision making now. But the important context there is you joined as CEO after Meetup was acquired by WeWork. Kind of imploded. Kind of. <laughs> Super imploded. Mega imploded. Yeah, I think so. And so you had to go through this process of making a lot of really hard, quick decisions about what would happen with Meetup and how it would survive this chaos and ultimately thrive at the other side of it. So maybe if you could just tee up what happened there, and then we can dive into what those decisions were and how you go about making decisions like that. Okay, let's do it. So when I first joined Meetup, there was tremendous cultural tension between WeWork ownership and Meetup. WeWork was all about, frankly, like growth for growth's sake. One of the KPIs that they gave Meetup, not that Meetup had for itself, but that WeWork essentially gave Meetup was number of employees hired. It was like a KPI. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Yeah. That should never be a KPI. Red flag. How many people can you... Oh, look, and we ended up beating the number of employees hired. We're down on profit, we're down on revenue, but that's okay. We beat number of employees hired, so feeling good. I mean, that's how you end up you know, losing billions of dollars, which is the case of WeWork, our, our kind of corporate owner. So we were pushed into this unsustainable growth. I think the company over doubled in size within a year of WeWork's ownership and went from basically a break-even business to a company that was losing $20 million a year. Mm. Really an unsustainable type situation. And then I got brought in. And that's complicated, obviously, because 
the company had always been run by Scott. And I think Scott is amazing. And he did an incredible job in growing the company. And Scott needed to move to a chairman role. And I became kind of the operational owner and decision maker. And in reality, one of the most important things for a new CEO is the first who, then what concept, right? That Jim Collins writes about. You have to decide who's your executive team and who's not in your executive team. And we really had to make a significant number of changes to the executive team. There isn't anyone on the executive team today that was at the company back then. And even within a few months, the vast majority of the executive team ended up uh, leaving the company. And that's not easy because that doesn't just affect those executives, that affects every employee and the relationships that people have with those employees and impacts the culture of the organization. So we're talking about like massive, massive change management in a situation where the company's losing tens of millions of dollars and not even growing, only growing expenses, not actually growing revenue. So it was not an easy situation to kind of walk into, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And then and then we start looking at WeWork's implosion when it went from a 47 billion valuation to a 40 billion valuation, to a 30, to a 20, to a 10. And we were kept saying, oh, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine. We're still going public, everything's fine. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I was told, don't worry about anything. I get informed by my manager that an article is about to come out in the Wall Street Journal telling the world that WeWork is now divesting Meetup and some of its other businesses. And I was like, I can't have all of our employees find out about this when through their friends and from journals, like they're not going to trust me. They're going to think that I knew about it. And then they're going to think like I was hiding something from them. And they're not going to trust my ability to support and help to hopefully get us to where we need to get to. So I quickly got everyone together in like a massive span of like five minutes. And I announced that WeWork is putting me up for sale. Within two minutes of that announcement, everyone's phone started buzzing. And we just made it in time. Wow. So I didn't kind of lose face with ev- with everyone. One person in the back screamed, yes, because they just really didn't like WeWork at all. Uh, <laughs> wow. Talk about making decisions quickly. Talk, yeah, exactly. And then that started a six-month kind of period where WeWork looked to divest us as quickly as possible and whoever paid the most. And my priority was, we need to find an owner for Meetup that believes in our mission, that believes in community that isn't just looking to gut the company, maximize it for profit, and then just destroy a 20-year, almost 20-year brand. Yeah. So I needed to do that. But all at the same time, we need to make sure that WeWork got the appropriate value for its business as well. So it was a very complicated dance. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, ultimately, through many different suitors, I was able to bring in the former CEO of DoubleClick, Kevin Ryan, in March of 2020, right when the pandemic hit and everyone thought Meetup could end up ceasing to exist, frankly, Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic and you couldn't meet up in person. Mm -hmm. And we were all about IRL at the time in real life. And he and another investor came. He did pretty much almost no due diligence. He said, this is one of the most I've ever spent, uh, you know, in terms of dollars. And this is the least due diligence I probably have ever done. But I've known you, David, for 20 plus years. I trust you. So let's do this. Wow. That was the uh, basis for pulling Kevin in. And then we got sold in March of 2020, right at the height of the pandemic. Yeah. It was, you know, craziness kind of continued from there. Right. How are things going now? (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) Actually, you'd be surprised. So we went from a $20 million loss to in 2019 
to a $3 million profit in 2020, which is kind of the greatest profit that the companies actually had. What we did is we made a hard pivot to allow for online events. And we said, what is our mission? Is our mission IRL or is IRL only a means to the greater end? The greater end being to drive real human connections. And oh, by the way, during the pandemic, people need real human connections even more. You can't do it safely. So we got all of our engineers together. We said, stop what you're doing. This is in March of 2020. Mm -hmm. When we saw all of our numbers literally going off a cliff, David. I mean, events down and everything just down, 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 down. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) The same thing at Bevy. (laughs) You know what I mean. Yeah, in-person disappeared overnight. Disappeared overnight. And then we got everyone together. And since the pandemic in last, uh, whatever, close to 24 months now, it has been quite interesting. We've had over 6 million online events on the Meta platform. Over 20 plus million people have participated in RSVP'd to online events. And interestingly, we keep seeing it come back. Like every week now, it's getting better and better. We're up to about 68% in person today and 32% online. Oh, interesting. And we're, for the future, we're going to be online. We're going to be in person. There's so many benefits to online in different ways than in person. And hybrid is obviously going to happen as well. And totally. the future is strong. We've been cash flow positive for now two years. And when the company hadn't been cash flow positive for uh, the three years previously. That's incredible. What a story. <laughs> you should write a I should book write about a book. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And just the 68, so 68% of meetups are in person today? Today, yeah. And it's what's fascinating is if you look at the by country. Oh, it's really coming back then. Oh, it's back. Yeah, it's back. I mean, Florida is like 82%. Texas is like 80%. Oregon is only 40%. So you could look at different states and see... San Francisco, 2%. San Francisco, (laughs) like, you know, 15, 20%. It's much lower. So you could look at like, there's a big red-blue state difference. Let's put it that way, between the in-person and remote. And also, if you look at globally, Western Europe was much, much lower. And just in the last month or so, with the easing of requirements with masks and social distance, we're just seeing it continue to grow. Australia is either like 100% in person or 0% in person, kind of depending on what the rules are at the time. Wild. Yeah. I feel like Meetup probably has better data than anyone else in the world about like sentiment and like how safe people feel in the pandemic. It's, we have some fascinating kind of heat maps, actually, both in terms of percentage IRL versus online and also percentage growth and change in IRL. And you could just see it. It's super fascinating stuff. Super interesting. Yeah. Should sell those heat maps. I'll get that to you, David, after this, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Send them to me. (laughs) I'll tweet them. (laughs) Please. That'd be great. That's really interesting. Yeah, maybe that's a business model. Sell your event data. We don't sell any data. That's no right data. Now the meetup world is no data selling. Not even a heat map. Not even a heat map. Not even a heat map. No, we're cold on heat maps. No heat map. All right. <laughs> All right. So what a story speaks to your abilities as a leader, as a CEO, as a community builder, as a teammate. So I guess first kudos and much respect for going through that and still having a smile on your face and getting the company to where it is today. So let's talk about how you did that. And that's what you talk about in this book is you boil it down to like, there's a series of 44, I believe, decisions that you needed to make that maybe are decisions that a lot of people will have to make if they ever 
happen to find themselves becoming a CEO of a company in a company that's imploding in a global pandemic, you may have to face some of these decisions. But actually, most of them are pretty applicable. Yeah, they're broad and universal. Exactly. When you join a company, what do you do? Or when you have a new manager, what do you do? Things like that. So let's start just broad level on the decision front. You have this concept of a decision framework that I thought is a really useful tool and will probably help people like me who have spent a long time thinking like, ah, I'm not good at making decisions quickly. It's probably because I didn't have a mental framework yet for how to make decisions. So what is a decision framework and and how does one figure out what theirs looks like? Okay. So what I found is that there were 10 themes that kind of weaved through all the decisions I made professionally, personally, and also during this WeWork meetup crisis timeframe change management situation. I don't think we have time to hit on all 10, but I'll, I'll highlight a few for you and go from there. So one of them that came up over and over and over again is the concept that so many people think that a decision that they're going to make is a trapdoor decision. When they make that decision, it's very hard to unwind. Mm. When in reality, there are trapdoor decisions. Deciding to have a child, that's a trapdoor decision. You can't put that kid back. Mm-mm. That's a pretty trapdoor decision. They can't change that. Most, just you decide to sell a company, hard to bring that back again. But most decisions, 99% of decisions are not trapdoor decisions. They're decisions that, and you could either increase the number of options that you have available to you and create many different additional options that you could potentially do. Like if you have a podcast, David, for example, you meet all these different people, you made the decision to have a podcast and that led to all these positive outcomes potentially for you from that decision. So think about like the optionality and the options that can result from a decision mm-hmm. versus minimizing the number of options in a decision. People don't necessarily prioritize making decisions that create many different options, mm-hmm. how important that actually is. And the reason why that's so important is because when you have many different options, that's how luck ends up happening. Mm. People oftentimes say, oh, David, you're so lucky or whatever it is. And they're right, I am lucky, but you can actually engineer your luck and have lucky things happen to you because you make decisions that create many, many different options for yourself. So that's kind of one concept, for example. Got it. And you go through, like, it essentially sounds like sort of a set of values that you have. Yes, exactly. That you kind of can apply to decisions. So I'm faced with this decision and you can look at this framework, which is a set of beliefs that you've identified and you tie it back to your like childhood experiences and previous life experiences, which I think is probably what we all can do. Maybe can you just speak to how that concept works in practice and maybe just touch on a few of those values or those things that you use in your decision framework? Sure. So one value that I talked about is be surprised only about being surprised, meaning your job in making a decision is to make sure that you're not surprising others. In my life, I have been beyond surprised by my board, by my manager, by my employees. And I consider one of my most important jobs as a leader, as a community leader, to be as transparent as possible so that other people around me are not surprised. So minimizing, Mm. if you are making a decision and that decision will result in people being surprised, then you need to ask yourself, what did I do wrong that people around me are going to be surprised by this? Can I look myself in the mirror and really not think of ways in which I could have minimized that surprise? And a key element of decision-making is not to surprise others. When people are surprised, oftentimes it's not necessarily a good surprise. So that's kind of 
one concept. The second concept I'll share is how can you build kindness into your decision-making? And too often leaders are perceived as people, they'll just do anything for revenue or profit or whatever their goal happens to be. My belief is that people don't work hard enough to try to find a way, let's say you're letting go of someone, or you have to do something that's difficult in an organization, shut an area of a business down, or who knows whatever you have to do. How do you do it in the kindest possible way? And understanding that there's a big difference between being nice and being kind. Mm. And oftentimes people conflate the two. They say, oh, that'll make someone feel bad. I don't want to do that. In reality, that could be the best possible thing for someone and the kindest thing for them that could be that critical feedback or to ask them to move to do something else. And understanding the difference Mm. between this is very important because people are loath to make decisions oftentimes because they feel bad or make someone else feel bad. When in reality, that isn't necessarily sustainable. Mm for someone to be in that position. And you have to understand the difference between being nice and being kind. Mm, I like that a lot. And I think you had about 10 of these kinds of tools or values that you use. Yep. And were these things that you sat down one day and you were like, what were my traumas as a child that I can translate into values? Or are they things that kind of came up for you organically? Like if I'm listening to this and I want to figure out what are my values? What, what does my decision framework look like? What would you recommend? Okay. What I'd recommend is write your story first. It doesn't have to be physically writing. Mentally figure out your story first. Figure out what's important to you first. And then the values can, will come out. Meaning I didn't choose these 10 themes and values. I wrote the experiences out. I wrote the decisions that we made out. And then I ended up seeing the same concepts happening over and over and again. Like we talked about in the beginning, David, Making decisions quickly, for example, is something incredibly important to decision-making. And over and over and over again, I would do that to positive results. And I contrast that with some people that weren't able to do that, and there were challenges that they ended up having having later on. So figure out, look at everything, see what worked and what didn't work, and then find those themes. Mm. Find those themes for yourself. I have to have 10 themes that worked for me, being confident, focusing, understanding how to balance the short and long-term in decision-making. Etc. And other people might need to find their things, but I think they could learn from the 10 values that I had shared. Mm-hmm. But first I wrote the book and then came the values actually. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think that's like a good actionable thing that people can do. And I would probably say they should write it down. And like, so it sounds like write down kind of the crucible moments in your life is a good way that I've heard yes. it described before. Like the points that you feel like you're who you are was forged. It could be really positive things really hard things, times you suffered, times you thrived throughout your life that when you think of like, oh, these are notable things that define who I am, write all of that down. And from that extract, like, what are the lessons I learned from that? What are the things I value as a result of that? And use that to design, like, here are the values that I can run all my decisions through. Yeah, it's more real that way. It's more real that way. It's going to be based on yeah. the truth rather than your perception of what actually the truth could be. And then the, I love that. trying to fit a narrative into principles is a lot less interesting than creating the principles after you already know what's meaningful and what's less meaningful. So completely agree. Totally. And when you're faced with a decision, do you just kind of like hold these this framework in your mind and apply it intuitively? Or do you have a process where you'll like, gradient it out in a spreadsheet and rate how this different options align with your values? Like, how do you put this into practice? Yeah. I think if you're overly mathematical, I'm a very mathematical data-driven person. So this is hard for me to say, 
But for certain <laughs> things, it's yeah. dangerous. Like, let's say you're looking to hire someone, for example. Yeah. If you're overly mathematical about the hiring process, and the entire time you're like, well, I have a grid of 15 different attributes that I'm looking for, and there are three to five in this, and two to five in this, and one to five in this, and five to five in this. Like, that's not the way to hire someone. Mm. It doesn't work. The way to do it is to understand what are the traits that you're most looking for in a person, or for me, what are the factors that are most important in decision-making? And sometimes something's a lot more important, and sometimes it's less important. Sometimes being honest in decision-making, being very practical in decision-making, there are certain concepts that will vary depending on the situation. So I have a filing cabinet, basically, of kind of these 10 themes, and it highly influences me without it being mathematical in nature. Mm, Interesting. I would say that I've learned in hiring, it can be helpful to have a sort of matrix to help with being objective in hiring because sometimes your intuition, your bias shows up and being able to actually see like where people land on things, especially when you're interviewing with lots of other people, it can help with that. But I think it's a balance, like not only looking at like what they meet in terms of this matrix, but also like just having more of that intuition of those values as well. Right. Having the five competencies that are particularly important to you in hiring, very important. Right. But then rating people mathematically in each one and then comparing that rating one person to another, that's kind of going a little bit overboard is what I would say. Got so it. similar theme. Okay. Okay. And so, okay, so you have this framework, you think about this as you're going through decisions. How do you think about, I mean, one thing you write about in the book is going with an imperfect plan over a perfect plan. Mm. I know for me, a lot of the time that, Part of the reason that I take so much time to make a decision is like, I really want to make the right one. And you touched on this with like, well, most decisions are not irreversible. So like, that's a good way to loosen those constraints. Is there anything else that works for you to get over that fear of I'm going to make the wrong decision? Yeah. I say to myself, I'm always going to make the wrong decision first. Right. I literally go into it saying, (laughs) I am always going to be wrong. 100% of the time, I'm going to be wrong. Or another way of saying 100% of the time, I'm going to make a sub-optimized decision. My job is to get as much validation, information, disagreement as I can, and then I will make a bit smarter decision the next time. I will optimize that decision. And the only way to do that is to get the product out there, get that MVP out there, get that concept out there. So my job is to make as smart a decision as possible. I'm always going to be wrong. I can either be wrong in getting out in a month or wrong in getting out in a year. Mm. But if I'm wrong in getting out in a month, in a year from now, I'm going to be a little less wrong, then a little less wrong, a little less wrong. And every time, (laughs) hopefully get it to be a little bit better. So it's very easy for me. I like that. I like that a lot. You're always wrong. It's not a matter of like right or wrong. You're definitely going to be wrong to some degree. You just want to be less wrong over time. (laughs) You're going to be very wrong. I think you're going to be totally wrong in the beginning. Just get it out there and learn. I love that. Yeah. And something that resonated reading your book for me as well was that when you're using your values and who you are in order to make these decisions, it speaks to the fact that like there isn't a right or wrong per se, because what's right for someone that had a very different life experience may not be what's right for you. And what's important is that you're making decisions that are authentic to you. And like whether or not it has the impact you hope to have you'll find out. You're probably wrong. (laughs) We all need to be our authentic self. And we can't pretend to be someone that we're not. Mm. One of the great things about Meetup, one of the great things about the world that we live in that's better now, still not ideal, but better now than it was 20, 30 years ago, is people could show up to work, ideally, whoever they are. If they love piercings and purple hair and whatever the heck they love, do it. Great. Bring that on at work and you're going to be even more successful and better. And if you're 
like wearing a suit at work, wear it, go for it. Wear that suit at work. Yeah. There seems to, there's like a trend on LinkedIn right now. I feel like, like I've seen like 50 posts in the last week of like 20 years ago, they said I would never be able to walk into an office with my tattoos. And now I never wear sleeves. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. People have been around working like I have. People would cover up their tattoos and turtlenecks oh, yeah. and things like that. I remember. I just, it's a perfect example where one of the ways that Meetup has been very successful is in mixing the personal and the professional. Mm-hmm. And people go on a, on a hike and have a great time and then end up finding a job. Mm-hmm. People go to a business networking event and then finding someone that could, and they get married to that person. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just this amazing mix between the personal and professional in community. Mm-hmm. And that drives so many serendipitous moments that blend the two. And I think the mm. more that that's blended, I mean, I just love when people come to a Zoom meeting in our office, like holding their kid or their pet on their lap. Yeah. Like you get to know them more and you build those relationships and it's great. Absolutely. Especially, I mean, today it's not even an option, right? Like <laughs> I'm wearing slippers. Like I don't care what the dress code is. I'm wearing slippers. My baby is probably going to be around or he was before he started daycare. And it's like, either I don't work here or that's going to happen. <laughs> I haven't worn pants in two years. I'm loving it. It's all good. <laughs> it's great. Okay. And there's a couple specific decisions that you speak about in the book that I want to mm-hmm. ask you about quickly. Great. One is you talked about entering a new company and having to build trust with the people in that company, which I think is also a very relevant topic for community builders broadly, since a lot of the time we may get hired to be a leader in a community that already exists, that already has a culture, is already mature, and you're coming in and expected to like step in as this leader that people you hope will respect and trust. How did you go about doing that at Meetup? Yeah. Well, much like we talked about earlier, you're always wrong when you first launch something. Yeah. So what I came in and I said, every person here has forgotten more about Meetup than I know day one. And people were looking at me like Moses with the Ten Commandments, like coming out, what's going to be the company strategy day one? And I'm like, dude, what's your name? Do you even know my name yet? (laughs) Like, let's just get the basics down first. So what I did, which I think a lot of people can learn from, is I channeled the collective. First, what I did is a week prior to starting, I started before meeting anyone for an entire week or being announced. And I met with Scott. I met with the executive team, met with WeWork, and we identified eight kind of pivotal areas within the company that we needed to figure out. Mm. And then we created what's called work streams in each of those eight areas. And we had every employee in the company or as many employees that wanted to participate could in each work stream. We then had my first two weeks, a daily meeting of all eight work streams. I brought in a person who had worked with me in the past to meet every single day for two weeks to then put a recommendation together of what the company strategy should be vis-a-vis a particular area. So mm. an example is an area was, we're doing too many different things right now. What should we kill? Typical entrepreneurial problem. And they made a recommendation of killing three or four different areas in the company. And then after two weeks, it wasn't David Siegel hubris saying, let's kill these four areas in the company. It was, you told us, you told us that we should kill these areas we're now going to follow exactly what you told us to do, and we're going to kill these four areas in the company. Yeah. The implication of that is X, Y, Z, but we are going to take your advice and do it. Because some things are just obvious that you need to do. Mm-hmm. People just didn't have a forum or feel comfortable actually making those changes. Mm. So that helped a lot because we then had tremendous buy-in on our strategy because the strategy ultimately came from the people. But what I did as a CEO, as an orchestra leader, 
is create a framework mm. for people to answer those questions, to focus on it really quickly. Two weeks. In two weeks, we had the most important eight questions answered, and then we just executed from there. I love that. You got them involved in the changes. You listened to them. You Oh, big time. They made the decisions. You were just facilitating that discussion. Mm -hmm. And you touched on this just now. You brought in two people you talked about in your book that were that you really trusted. Who are those people? Why is it so important to bring in people that you trust when you're entering a new community or company like this? Yeah, and I think it's true for community leaders as well. It's hard when you have 250 people that look at you as the person who's now the WeWork representative. And don't forget, they did not like WeWork. And the person who's replacing Scott, the founder of the company, and people are going to look at you very circumspect. They're going to look at you very carefully. And it's it was a, a tough situation of, of People, I need to earn their trust as opposed to trust being given to me day one. Sure. So when I accepted, I said, okay, I'll accept on one condition. I need to bring two people in. One of them is a strategy guy who is going to help me to figure out the strategy of the company. He's the one who facilitated those eight work streams. And he worked with me previously as an executive at Investopedia. He worked with me previously at Seeking Alpha. So this is his third job with me. So mm-hmm. we work very well with each other. You have a report. It was Greg Juicy. Yeah. And then the other person, Janine Miatan, who you know, actually, David. Mm-hmm. So Janine was my trusted executive assistant who had been promoted, actually, out of being an executive assistant. I went to her and I said, okay, Janine, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go back to a role that you had as almost a demotion for you because I need you back at Meetup because you are the best and I trust you so much. And don't worry, you're gonna have your career is gonna blossom. And now she's been promoted multiple times and she's running all events for Meetup. And it's been a kind of a great success story, both of them. But it really helped me to have people who focus on strategy and, and your assistant kind of knows every single thing going on in your personal and professional life. And I want to make sure that that was secure. I love that. Yeah. It gives you like, it takes time to build up the trust to be able to work with people effectively too. And I'm sure having two people that you already had so much trust and rapport with allowed you like get things moving and like you didn't have to spend so much time building trust with them. You could focus on building trust with the others without having to wait to like hit the ground running. Correct. 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 Yeah. I like that a lot. And last, one of the other decisions that you talk about is one to empower people and mm. one to micromanage people. Mm. I was curious to hear. How do you know what to do? What situation? Okay. So my entire career, I've been obsessed with empowerment. And your job as a manager is to create a framework for decisions. And you can figure out the, you work with people on the why, and then everyone else figures out the what and the how. Mm -hmm. And really focus on empowerment. And that has served me well in that People tend to work, enjoy working for managers like that. They don't want to work for a micromanager. Mm-hmm. The problem at Meetup, however, was that the company was, I'm going to say dying, but dying from indigestion, not starvation. What that means is there were mm. dozens of different projects out there. There were so many different things that we could have done and prioritized. And people were prioritizing so many different projects that didn't really work as a flywheel in terms of each project actually helping out the other area in kind of a very helpful way. So it took me a while, honestly, to move away from my very natural tendency around empowerment. And I moved to a pretty strong, here's the why, here's the what, here's the how, please figure out the details. And it was only after we actually had to do that, that we really started improving as an organization, being more focused as an organization, 
and have done, frankly, a lot better for our members and for our organizers. So I think the answer is, is that when there is so many different potential challenges that you face, it's extremely important to focus an organization or a community on one or two things that are the most critical. And even though you have many challenges, you got to deprioritize them. Mm-hmm. When it's a little bit more focused, then you could allow for greater levels of empowerment. So mm. my advice to people is prioritize empowerment, but understand that if it doesn't work, figure out whether it's working or not. And if it's getting the results that you need or not, and if it's not, then you need to be comfortable being more didactic in your decision-making because that's in some organizations exactly what you need. Mm. And if every single decision is a democracy, if every single decision is, well, what do you all think? Then you're also not doing your job as a leader either. Mm. There's a lot of relevance in what you're describing for community builders, for anyone who's in leadership position. I think community builders, similar to you, have a natural inclination to be hands-off, let people create, give them ownership, give them autonomy. But what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is like that works when the system is working because you can give them autonomy within that system. Like, sure, we know the direction we're going. We know overall the constraints run within those constraints. But if the system is not working, you have to change the constraints. And that means essentially like taking on more control yourself. And explaining. And the key is when we became more didactic and telling people about what to do and limiting the different options that people should be focused on and engineers should be focused on, we were very honest. And we said, for right now, we need to be a little bit more top down or even a lot more top down in what you were focusing on. It doesn't mean we don't want your opinions. Just means we're going to be more top down, but we still want to create the structure for you to make suggestions and they'll evaluate those suggestions. But those are suggestions. We're not going to have you make those as decisions. They're going to be suggestions. Mm, Suggestions versus decisions. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a conversation to be had here around this world of decentralization now and DAOs and leaderless organizations and whether or not that would work. I think it's, it will be very challenged. Yeah, I agree. And finally, what's the future for Meetup? Where are things going? Is it all moving to the metaverse or what? God, I hope not. I mean, (laughs) we're hunter-gatherers in our DNA. 10,000, 100,000 years, we've been hunter-gatherers. We've had community as part of our fabric for our entire lives. We've had in-person in our fabric our entire lives. To me, one of my favorite things is really getting an understanding of someone's energy and building that relationship. And I don't think that happens the same way through a Zoom or laptop as it happens directly in person. So yes, of course, there's going to be more virtual events than ever. There's more global events than ever, which is a great thing because it's much easier to have a global event today than ever before. There's opportunities to connect people from different parts of the world that had never been able to be connected. It's an opportunity to help people who are in more underprivileged areas to be able to get access to information through virtual than ever before versus having to pay for an expensive train ride into an expensive part of the city, you know, et cetera. But you cannot build relationships in the same way online as you can in person. And one of the most beautiful things in life is the ability to build relationships. It helps personally, it helps professionally, it helps in every single thing that we do. It's one of the most important causes towards happiness is the relationships that you have that. Harvard, the biggest Harvard study over 100 years going, has looked at over all hundreds of different factors towards happiness. And number one was the relationships that people have. And 
in person is forever. And uh, hopefully meet up is forever as well. Love it. You got to be able to smell each other. I think that's it. I think so too, especially after a good meetup basketball or soccer game, hands down. Yeah, you got to smell each other. <laughs> you can't trust someone until you smell them. That's what I always said. Words to live by. <laughs> On that I'm note, glad we met for the first time over like a dinner. And, you know, there was some delicious <laughs> fish and meat going on that that time. <laughs> You're going to think about how you smell next time you meet someone. Okay, well, this is a perfect time to transition into our rapid fire question round and wrap things up. David, are you ready for the rapid fire question round? Let's go. All right. First question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? And if you're not a book gifter, to recommend to others? How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Mm, Great one. Classic. One that every community builder should read. Yes. All right. Two. What's the weirdest meetup group out there? We have some hugging groups out there that people get together and just hug each other. Mm. And, you know, lots of oxytocin going on, but um, not something I would necessarily participate in. Just purely all about hugging. hugging. That's why why they gather. All right. I like it. Three, have you ever worn socks with sandals? Who hasn't? I wear it right now. That's great. Do you think like, I think the higher percentage might be like Jews might be a higher percentage that wear socks and sandals than non-Jews. I don't know. Oh, hands down. Come on. I mean, I wear socks and sandals and I'm just as clothed as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as many layers. Is there a meetup for people who wear like Burks and socks? Oh, there's a meetup for everything. The Burks and stock meetup. I, there could be. I, there's a lot of crazy, crazy, I there's a lot there. of witch meetups out there. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there. So, Right. I'm glad to hear the witch meetups are still going strong. Still going strong. Still going strong. We get free brooms um, with uh, the meetup brand on them. <laughs> That's, that would actually be pretty dope. <laughs> What's one community engagement tactic or conversation starter you like to use? Ah, so these days I like to say, over the last two years, tell me the best thing that's happened into your life because of COVID and tell me the biggest challenge. And usually it opens up some great conversation because there's some great things mm. that have happened because of COVID for people. And let's let's put mm. some positivity in through all around that too. I like that. I like that opening. I think, yeah, I think I've actually used that once as an icebreaker in an event. Like what's a positive impact? Because we only tend to talk about the, the negative in it. Love that one. What is the most important metric that you look at when looking at the health of a meetup? Sure. For us, it's for us as a company, it's the number of connections that we create between people. It's all about making connections between people. So as a company, we make 30 mm-hmm. million connections a year between people. And generally speaking, the best connections happen in smaller groups, smaller communities, mm-hmm. than in larger ones. So how do you know that? Oh, because we've actually surveyed on people to get their the impact that, that Meetup has had on them. And when you're in a smaller eight, 10 person kind of group, let's say a book group or a knitting group or whatever, hiking group, it's different than a 50 person thing where there's more presentation. It makes intuitive sense because you're going to be more connected if you have more personal interactions and you're going to have more personal interactions typically in a smaller group where you're not as intimidated than in a larger group. Super interesting. And is that like a score that you collect so you can compare big groups for small groups? Yep. Yep. What's the question you ask to get that score? I have to go back and look. It might be the NPS question of, would you recommend this event or this group to a friend? Okay. I'm very curious. Like I've long wanted to come up with an NPS for communities. And NPS can work for communities, but not always, because sometimes you don't want to recommend a community you love to others because you want it to be more secretive or private. Right. That's always a bit of a challenge, but we do ask that question and we have the NPS type of data. 
from Kid Cudi lots of ways. Ah, super interesting. And so you see higher scores for smaller groups. Yep. Super interesting. Is there any data or metric that you look at to have like predictive, to be able to be predictive about whether or not a chapter is going to succeed? It's like number of events hosted or... I think the biggest predictor, yes, absolutely. The biggest predictor we find is that if a group has, there's two cliffs. If a group has more than 10 members within the first 30 days, the key is early days getting a lot of members. And then the next cliff in a positive way is if they have 20 members within the first 30 days. And then if within the first 60 days, they have their first event. If a group doesn't get kind of enough members quickly and early on, then oftentimes the organizer gets discouraged and disappointed mm. and then decides to, you know, to jettison the whole idea. So showing some quick and early success with people. And then once you have a whole bunch of people who join your group, then you're like, I don't want to let these people down. We got to have our first event totally. and things kind of build from there. So right. we had our first event. They want another, they want another one. Yeah. They want the next event. So the key is like in the book, we talk about speedy decision-making. It also matters kind of speedy group building so that you don't get disappointed with having your first event be potentially a flop. Love that. That's awesome. So 10 members in the first 30 days. Yep. And then 50 members. Yep. Much higher likelihood the group will succeed in the future if you have that. And then you said 50 in the first 60? No, it's really 10 in the first 30 has like a difference. And then an even bigger difference is once you hit 20. Once you hit 20 in the first 30 days, it doesn't matter whether you have 20 or 100 or 200, but you have less than 10, it's kind of going to be in trouble. Got it. Between 10 and 20, it's going to be good and 20 or more is going to be great. Got it. And then it was the first event in the first 60 days. Yes. Got it. That's awesome. That's super interesting. Okay. That was not a rapid fire question, but I just got <laughs> curious, which tends to happen in the rapid fire question round. I apologize. That was my fault. But next question, who in the world of community would you like to take out for lunch? I'm brought you into the broad sense of community, but I'm semi-obsessed and a huge fanboy of Angela Duckworth. She is the author of Grit, and she has one of my favorite podcasts, uh, No Stupid Questions. And I just think she's so hilarious and so smart. And she went to the same school as I did. So one day, I would love to be able to take her out and just learn a ton from her about behavioral economics and its impact on influence and, and community. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to get her on this podcast. That'd be really cool, actually. I'm surprised you didn't say Adam Newman. <laughs> Got to know him already pretty well. Yeah, you already had lunch. <laughs> yes, we have a vegan lunch. <laughs> Which if vegan everyone lunch. wants to hear a great Adam Newman story, just read the book. I'll just say that. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> this is going to sound sick, but I've had sardines almost every single day for lunch for the last two years. Wow, that is that is sick. <laughs> that is the weirdest answer I've gotten to that question. <laughs> it's, you know what? I have like in between meetings, I will run downstairs, open a can of sardines, throw a bed of lettuce down, and just that'll be usually my lunch, maybe with some pasta. And just the life of a CEO is not that glamorous, just for people to know. Wow. Love it. All right. Good to know. We learned something about you today, something very deep and personal. There you go. It's not gefilte fish, sardines. <laughs> I know. Ironic. What is a community product you wish existed? You know, the biggest challenge for community at, at Meetup and probably in other communities is just getting people off the damn couch to go to their first event. And there's so much inertia that comes in. So I want some product, I don't know what it is, that can get people off the couch to go to their first event. And once they get to that first event, they're going to have the greatest time. But there's that fear that exists for people before going to that first event or people don't like me. Am I going to be the only person that doesn't know anyone? So 
find me a product that could get people fast to their first event and just the event and the experience in the community will take care of itself after that. Hmm. Interesting. Like a drone that comes and grabs you out of your house. Yeah, swoops <laughs> you up and forces you to go there. What if, here's an idea for you, because I've been thinking a lot about um, like the one-on-one networking apps that are starting to come out a lot where they like match people yeah, up. Sure. What if you got matched up with yep. another member of the meetup for like a quick video call before the event? Would that increase the likelihood that you'll go to the event? It really would. It really would. One of the things that we that organizers that are great always do is they reach out personally to every single new member that ever joins. They welcome them. They get to know them a little bit more. Ideally, they even have a conversation with them previous to the event. And if they do, the likelihood of the person showing up at that first event is significantly higher than if there's been minimal to no interaction beforehand. It's super important. Right. I wonder you, you could scale that though, right? Because like a organizer can only do so much. But if Meetup automatically said, like, yeah, it could be here anyone if you in the want group. to be introduced to someone else in the group and it'll exactly. set up a virtual call. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. Try it out. Put it, put it on the know. list. Thank you for Let the suggestion. Know. You're welcome. <laughs> it is a good idea. <laughs> <All right. laughs> What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Weirdest community I have ever been a part of. Not the hugging community, I guess. You know, you know, not that community. I would say I'm obsessed with fantasy baseball. We're some serious fantasy baseball nerds and weirdos. Mm-hmm. That's probably a pretty weird community that we have there. You know, people that know like what the batting average or the RBIs were for someone that hasn't played in 20 years. There's some weirders there, but I love them. That is, yeah, that is weird. Baseball's slow enough already without having to pay attention to <laughs> fantasy stats. So I'm sure you're a bunch of weirdos. All right, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one piece of advice to the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Yeah, for me, it's find joy in your day-to-day by helping to have that joy set you up for longer-term success. If you spend all your day just hedonistically looking for joy and happiness that doesn't serve any purpose at all for the future, then you might be challenged in your future. But if you spend all of your time preparing for your future and doing unjoyful activities, then that's just not a way to live because that future may never arrive, just the unenjoyment. Focus on day-to-day joy, not week-to-week, not month-to-month, literally day-to-day joy in your day-to-day and have it set you up. So that means love your job and have the job help to set you up for the future. Those kinds of things. Mm. Love that. Yeah, so not so far in the spectrum of joy seeking that it's like good now, but has no positive impact on the future. Or negative impact, drug or use, negative for impact, example. Drug use, or like not having moderation, watching too much TV or using too much TikTok. Exactly. But also don't only just focus on things that are good for your future that you're going to suffer through now. Try to find that balance. I like that a lot. Not worth suffering. Life's too short. I love it. David, this was a pleasure. Everyone should go out and get the book, Decide and Conquer. By the way, I almost named my book Connect and Conquer. So that would Whoa, have been that would have been complicated. I'm glad that didn't happen. Phew. Yeah, it was a little too aggressive for my audience. <laughs> but you know, where can people go to get the book to find you and continue to learn from you? Awesome. So they get the book at anywhere books are sold. Amazon, for example, if you've heard of that. They could also go to the website, decideandconquerbook.com, Barnes and Noble, bookstores, you name it. I also think the audio version of the book is awesome so if people enjoy did you read it, it oh i didn't read it i did not read yeah. it my noise is too nasally i disagree but i have listened to i listened to the speaker and uh he's amazing he's done like some top best-selling books and the audio version is just awesome or so download the audio or get the audio version or the kindle version or or the book and 
love to hear people's feedback. And if people do have feedback, they can email me, david at meetup.com if they want. They can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, David Mayer Siegel. And looking forward to connecting with as many people as possible. That's what we do. Love it. And you have a podcast as well. I do called Keep Connected. And it helps people to learn about community and be motivated and educated for community leaders just like you. There you go. Another great podcast to listen to. The only mistake they made was having me on early on, but... (laughs) Oh, David, no, you were so good. People loved the episode. We got tons of positive feedback. So check out the David Sphinx episode on Keep Connected and you will want to come back for more. David, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. I learn a lot from you every time we chat and I have a lot of fun. Really grateful for you and Meetup, like I said, huge impact for me, huge impact for the world. And you stepped in to help make sure that it continues to thrive and continues to help people. I think you really are someone that I've seen live your values every day and you care so much genuinely about building real community. So I'm just grateful to have you in this world and grateful that you're leading Meetup and uh, appreciate you taking the time to share all your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much. And I same, and I can't wait to see you in person as well. Hopefully in the near future, that would be a nice thing. Can't wait to smell you. I I will smell extra pretty for you. (laughs) Guaranteed. (laughs) Smell you later. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We'll smell you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media, Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.